I'm speaking primarily about economic costs because they are the fundamental driving force behind disruption. However, in the case of climate change, for example, um, the environmental costs are another, uh, are another factor to consider. So with these three disruptions, we are in an, in an extraordinary situation where not only are the new technologies economically more cost-effective, uh, and that is that's the primary driving force for the fact that they're disruptive the, uh, in their nature, but they are also going to um, allow us to reduce social costs and environmental costs that are associated with the older technologies. Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks, the podcast where we discuss global energy issues and trends with experts from around the world. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. On this episode, I'll be talking to Adam Dore of Rethink, Rethink X, Tony Seba's think tank, about the new study, Rethinking Climate Change. Welcome to the interview, Adam. Hi, Markham. Thanks for having me. Now, look, this is a very interesting study, uh, and I've interviewed Tony about all of the past studies about transportation and agriculture and food and, and uh, energy. And what I like about Rethink X is that it takes, always takes a different angle than any other, you know, think tank or academic that I, that I interview. And I think fundamental, these are studies are fundamentally hopeful. They give us, they point us in a direction. They're not forecasts, they're not predictions, but they point us in a direction that if we make particular choices as a society, make particular investments, policies, we can have much more positive outcomes than we would otherwise. And I, and I think that's a useful uh, contribution to public discourse. So maybe in this case, Adam, if we could start with a, a brief overview of the study, please. Sure. Well, our previous research has looked at uh, the three disruptions that we face over the next 10 to 15 years. So these are disruptions in the energy sector, the transportation sector, and uh, the food sector. And having done a deep dive into the disruptions themselves and the technologies that are going to drive those, the next uh, logical question to ask after having done those and laid that foundation is, okay, what are the implications of those three disruptions? And not one by one, not individually, which would be extraordinary enough in each in of themselves, but what is the total implications of all three of them converging simultaneously? And this convergence of three major disruptions of foundational sectors of the global economy is, is it's really a once in a century uh, or maybe a, a, a more rare event than that. It's a truly extraordinary moment in human history to have such a, a convergence. And so we are, we're planning on doing a series of um, studies that look at the full range of different implications. And this study, this report focuses only on climate change, on the implications of, for climate change, which are extraordinary as well. Very exciting. And as you said, overwhelmingly positive. But that's the goal of the research is to, is to say, okay, when we put the analysis of technological progress and the implications of disruptions together, what do we see for X? And in this case, X is climate change. And we do see extraordinary things. Um, so the, the headline, the, the highlight of our um, findings is that if we make good choices, then these three disruptions put us on track to 
mitigating 90% of global greenhouse gas emissions by 2035. And this is much more quickly than is widely imagined. And a, a, a key aspect of this is to emphasize that this is with technology we already have. This is by deploying and, uh, and scaling technology that already exists, not moonshot technologies that still have decades of R&D and tens of, billion tens of billions of dollars um, before they're going to be viable and deployable at, the mar at market. We're talking about solar, wind, and batteries in the energy sector. We're talking about electric vehicles and autonomous driving and uh, together with ride hailing and transportation as a service in the transportation sector. And we're talking about precision fermentation and cellular agriculture in the food sector. And again, these are not science fiction, they are science fact. These exist now, they are ramping up and rolling out. And um, the mileage that we can get out of these eight technologies by disrupting these three sectors is, is mind blowing, frankly. Well, that's a, that's a very good introduction to this, and uh, listeners can understand why I see this as a study that is tremendously hopeful, because the IPCC report that came down this week uh, is anything but, and uh, judging by the conversations I'm having in my social media feeds, uh, the folks that I know are not particularly hopeful, and I think that this kind of an analysis and outlook uh, is something that we really need at this at this moment. We need to to not uh, not despair, uh, which is the direction we're going. So, before we get into the specifics of this, uh, Adam, uh, there is a SEBA disruption model that lies at the foundation of your analysis, and I'm wondering if you can explain what that model is. Well, absolutely. So. The SIBA technology disruption framework, uh, it was developed by Tony SIBA, who, who is, is, of course, the co-founder of RethinkX. And his framework pulls together um, the, the leading theoretical bases um, from the scientific literature for understanding technology disruptions. It synthesizes them and it adds uh, explanatory power in a number of ways. And, and the, the upshot um, out of, the, of that framework is that technology disruptions always follow an S-curve. So when you get a convergence of technologies whose costs are improving in consistent uh, and, and um, rapid ways, which we see in each of these, in each of these three sectors we've looked at, um, and that points to those technologies becoming overwhelmingly competitive economically with the incumbent technologies, then you're poised for a disruption. And what the disruption looks like is never a slow incremental linear uh, transition over many decades. What disruption looks like is a, is a surprisingly slow stealthy beginning followed by a, uh, an explosive growth up an exponential curve. That's up the, the first portion of the S curve is exponential and then after inflecting leveling off at a new at a new um, high at a new state of adoption and what that means I'll give you a, a specific familiar example let's take uh, digital cameras disrupting film cameras uh, digital cameras were in quiet development they were used by NASA for example for, for um, uh, uh, many years in the 1970s and 1980s and then finally in 1995, the first digital camera became available at the market, actually affordable, actually of a quality that was useful, although still not quite the, uh, competitive with film cameras. But within just 10 years, film cameras had fallen from 
virtually 100% of the photography market to uh, less than 5% of the market. And, and the disruption was over. Kodak, which had been a titan, a seemingly invincible um, titan in the industry, was bankrupt. And as we know, the rest is history. And now there are far more digital cameras in the world than there ever were film cameras. So not only did the new technology take over and disrupt the market, but it hugely grew and expanded the market. So um, this, is, uh, this is an example of what the technology framework is capable of doing. It's capable of telling us how and when and where disruptions occur and what to expect in terms of the time frame. I, I want to throw a, a bit of a Canadian wrinkle on this because I use the S-curve all the time and my audience is uh, generally, uh, while we have many academics and, and students, uh, we also have lots of, uh, you know, sort of general, uh, general audience. And I like to think of the S-curve as a hockey stick. And so at the very beginning of the S-curve, think of it as the, uh, the toe of, the, of the, the blade on the hockey stick, it's flat. And it takes, you know, probably 20, 25, sometimes 30 years or more to get to slowly progress from the toe down to the heel of the, of the hockey stick. But when it hits the heel, that's the inflection point where it has become competitive. That technology is competitive in the market and it's ready to begin displacing it, the older technologies in a very significant way. And then, of course, where does the hockey stick, the, the shaft of the hockey stick go? Not quite straight up, but, you know, pretty close. And that's when we get that exponential growth. And I have argued, and, and listeners of this podcast will know, I've recently written a, a, an essay about how uh, the, the basic model here is 20 or 30 years of slow growth, a decade or so of really disruptive change where you know, the technologies are, are on that, the shaft of the hockey stick, followed by two or three decades of slower growth as the technologies become dominant and push the other, the older technologies almost entirely out of, out of the market. And the point here is the 2020s are the disruptive decade of this energy transition, just like the 1920s were the disruptive decade of the last energy transition. So my small contribution to the, uh, to the discussion on uh, Tony's disruption model. So let's talk about some of these uh, disruptions and you're arguing that uh, just the three disruptions alone with the eight technologies that you describe in the study can directly eliminate over 90% of net greenhouse gas emissions worldwide within 15 years. That's an extraordinary argument, uh, Adam. Uh, how in the world could we marshal the resources that are needed to accomplish that? So again, this is, this is what takes us by surprise with disruption is how rapidly they can, the, the transformation of existing systems can unfold. But it's not, um, this is not a timeline that is written in stone. Our choices matter. So what we describe in our study are three different scenarios. One in which we make uh, good decisions where we um, are sensible and that is the, the, the main scenario where we do, in fact, achieve 90% reductions by, 20, by 2035 on target towards a net, zero, a net zero world by 2040. If we fail to make good choices, the disruptions, although they are ultimately inevitable because of the technologies becoming more competitive than the incumbents, 
uh, we, they, we could delay disruption substantially if we do not make good choices as societies. And disruption doesn't happen everywhere simultaneously at, at, at the same rate. Some, uh, some localities, some cities, some regions, some countries will choose to lead the disruption and will be out ahead and others will choose to resist the, the disruption and lag behind. So it really does come down to choices. We're not talking about a, a technologically determined outcome here. We, social choices are still crucial. Now it is um, uh, an extraordinary situation with climate change because we have a ticking clock here. So delays of five, 10, 15 years, they really matter for climate change. So the importance of making good choices rather than, than bad ones is, is, um, is very stark in this case. As for how can we do this, uh, the, the choices that we face are, um, they are really about getting out of the way of the technologies and allowing them to deploy and scale as quickly as they are capable of doing. And if we, if we get out of the way, if as decision makers, policymakers, investors, civic leaders, and other decision makers, if we make good choices like um, having uh, uh, appropriate market design, removing barriers to market entry, um, uh, reducing or, or at least diminishing the, the subsidies to existing monopolies in the utility sector, for example, if we make good choices like that, then we can make sure that the technologies proceed up that adopt, exponential adoption curve sooner rather than later. Now, I appreciate that argument, uh, Adam, because I talked to a lot of uh, experts who are involved in either the development or the deployment of, of new technologies. Maybe there's you know, policymakers who are thinking about how uh, policy has to change. And one of the uh, points that comes up over and over again is the inertia of these of global energy systems, how deeply embedded they are in society, how difficult it is to make to make choices. And, you know, you to look at the, uh, the US electricity system right now, I mean, you know, the, the amount of money that the Biden administration is, is putting into grid modernization, for instance, and then how that has to filter down through all of the, the various uh, state regulators have to make policy changes. FERC, Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, has to make policy changes. On and on, these decisions have to go. How complex it is to make a, a, ch a change like that. That's one country. Canada, Canada has its own problems because uh, here we have uh, 12, uh, 10 provinces and uh, two or three uh, territories. And each one of them, unlike the US, we don't have a, a, a federal regulator with jurisdiction over electricity. So somehow you have to get these subnational governments to all get together and, and talk about this and, and make changes. And that's, you know, it's like herding cats. Uh, and I imagine, you know, Europe has had its challenges, China has its challenges, other, the, the challenge here is enormous. And I think the value of your study is pointing out why people, why these decision makers and why those of us who support decision making uh, citizens uh, have to change our thinking about that. It's not that this is impossible, uh, but it's very difficult. And as you say, time's, wait, time's a wasting, we got to get on it and so on. So uh, any, any insights, any recommendations 
on how to overcome that kind of inertia and these roadblocks to make better societal choices. Well, I think there are actually there are two things that are worth mentioning here. It's a it's an it's a this is an enormous discussion, uh, very complex subject as you as you rightly point out. Let me uh, just point to two um, thoughts that I think are are useful for context here. Uh, the first is that um, these new clean technologies, and they didn't have to be clean, by the way, we're very fortunate here. There have been dirty disruptions in the past. Uh, for example, fossil fuels were not necessarily cleaner and more sustainable than the, the animal and vegetable fuels uh, that they replaced in the 19th century. So we're, we're simply very fortunate this time around that these, that these new technologies happen to be clean. But it really is the economics that are the driving force. And what that means is that now, uh, we are entering a, a, a new epoch for specifically clean energy. It will be the same for clean transportation and food. We are entering a, a, a moment where everyone can agree on the value of driving the adoption of these new technologies forward. In other words, we no longer are faced with difficult compromise choices like, well, we would like to have clean energy, but it's much more expensive, so we have to subsidize it and so forth. Those conversations, which we had 10 years ago, 20 years ago, those were very challenging and it was difficult to bring um, a, a large uh, diverse group of, of interests across populations together to, to unite um, uh, behind us. But now we have the market as a tailwind behind us. And what that, what that points towards is um, an, a new and an extraordinary opportunity for, um, in the political sphere, bipartisanship at the local level for agreement um, across the board for more consensus and cooperation uh, among different group interest groups um, to, to push us forward towards these disruptions. So that's the first thought is that uh, now that these technologies are economically viable, we can get a lot more people on board and gather momentum in a way that was extremely difficult in the past. The second thing to think about is that there these, especially I'll, I'll focus on the energy uh, space, although there are analogies in, in transportation and food as well, but in energy, the new system has extraordinary properties, properties that the old system doesn't have. And as we recognize and start to embrace those new opportunities that emerge from, from um, the disruption, uh, this is going to absolutely turbocharge the momentum for adoption. And so I'm specifically talking here about a finding in our work called that we call superpower, which is this, the, um, the phenomenon where uh, solar, wind, and batteries together, when they are deployed in the optimal mix, they have an, a staggering secondary benefit, which is that they produce an enormous amount of electricity at near zero marginal cost for most of the year. Now, once a, a locality or a city or a region starts to identify how to take advantage of, those, of that opportunity, we are going to see an explosion of enthusiasm and momentum for these disruptions. And this can happen anywhere in the world at any time, provide an instructive example, and then the whole world will be, will be uh, scrambling to follow that example. So those are just two thoughts about, um, uh, about how we can think differently. Uh, through the lens of disruption. 
Yeah, and let's talk about what disruption means. Because, and, and I actually, I remember having this conversation with Tony, uh, pretty much all of the other interviews I've done with him. And I think what you, what Rethink X means by disruption is when costs fall four to 10 times below what the current cost of a, a tech, uh, technology is, then you have major disruption uh, in that particular market with that particular technology, but it goes beyond more than that. It actually has, uh, just as during the 1920s, tractors and combines transformed North American agriculture. It, uh, uh, cars and trucks in the 1920s transformed North American cities. The horses disappeared almost entirely from, from cities. And then you have other knock-on effects like the rise of suburbia and on and on and on and on. I mean, the kind of transfer, transformation that we're talking about is of that magnitude here. And it, in order for it to proceed apace, at, and certainly at the pace that's required to combat climate change, people need to begin to understand that the, the transformative nature of what's going on. And there's still a lot of resistance. I see it in, in uh, Canadian politics and American politics all the time. So how do we make better societal choices? We have to have different conversations, essentially about climate change and energy and food and, and transportation. How, any thoughts or insights on how to change the conversation around this? Well, I think that the, the most important thing by, by far is to have those conversations. This is what's critical. Uh, it is unlikely that a one-size-fits-all solution will emerge from any, com from any conversation about a, uh, a system or a, or a challenge as complex as, as this, a system as complex as energy or a challenge as, as, as formidable as climate change. But the, what's important is to have new conversations, um, taking on board new information, and in particular, how technology uh, and, and progress in technological capability changes the, the discussion, changes the, the, um, uh, the game completely. And so I think that, that the, the crucial step to take here is to have conversations of a wide ranging kind and to be open to experimenting and failing quickly in order to learn, in order to learn what works in different circumstances. And there are, there are many different circumstances worldwide the variation geographically, economically, geopolitically, social and socially and culturally, and of course, ecologically, uh, these factors all mean that we're likely to see different uh, specific solutions um, for what does this disruption look like? What does the new system post disruption, um, uh, what features does it have? What properties does it have? But the, the important thing is to run those experiments and learn quickly. And we can't do that unless we talk about it. Well, let's talk about the S-curve in terms of ideas, because I would argue, well, I, this is hardly a, a, a novel thought, but essentially ideas follow, the, the, the diffusion of ideas follows the same uh, S-curve as the diffusion of technology. And it takes a long time, you know, getting back to the hockey stick, it takes a long time for new ideas to get from the toe of the blade to the to the uh, heel of the blade where they're ready to, you know, an inflection point. And I think I would argue that when it comes to these technologies and disruptions and climate change, in fact, 
the technology is actually leading on the S-curve ahead of ideas and, and conversations. And uh, maybe one of the things that we have to start thinking about is, you know, the markets and technology change and capital and, and policy, all of those are supercharging the, the uh, development of and, and adoption of, new, of these new technologies. And we need to put the same effort and resources into supercharging the change in the conversation and the change in, change in our, our ideas. Would you agree with that? I think that's an absolutely fantastic point. Uh, and, and again, the, the important thing for any, any society and certainly for the world as a whole is to um, become aware of the possibilities. Technologies fundamentally are tools. They are, a, they are a form of practical knowledge. They allow us to achieve our goals. And those tools can take a variety of different forms. They can be physically embodied tools like a hammer, or they can be purely intellectual tools and ideas like, um, like software. And so what we need to do is we need to become aware of uh, what tools we have in hand, what tools will come into, uh, gra into grasp, what, what ones are, are we are about to acquire, and what new possibilities, the space of new possibilities that those tools opens up. And this has always been the case throughout human history. A new tool comes along and learning how to use it and, 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 and what can be achieved with it is, um, is a product of awareness, education, experimentation, uh, learning. And so we need to do all of those things. And the, the more quickly that we can do that, the better we're going to be able to achieve goals uh, that are time sensitive, like um, solving the climate crisis. There's a, a point that you make in the study that I think is really interesting, and it's relevant to this idea of the conversation that we need, conversations that we need to have uh, in our respective countries and, and elsewhere. And that is decarbonization will not be costly, but it'll actually save money. And, and I think that that, uh, you know, in market-oriented societies, that's a really important idea because there's a tremendous uh, resistance from uh, existing industries. And I think oil and gas is one that I've reported on in or, uh, quite a bit. And I know the influence that it has on politics, both in Canada and the United States. And, uh, you know, it resists that change because it's an existential threat to the hydrocarbon sector. And one of the ways to get around that uh, or to confront that is the, the idea that, it, you know, it's our lives are going to be more productive and, and more cost-effective. We'll have more, more money, better for society, cheaper for society if we em employ clean energy, uh, changes, electric transportation, and these changes that are coming in the food sector. Uh, so I, would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. And, and again, this is, this, is a, uh, this is a feature of the fact that disruptions are driven primarily by economic forces. So it, it is, it, it's, it's simply a logical um, uh, outcome that if a technology or set of technologies um, that converge offers a, a um, value proposition that is more cost-effective or more capable or both, and so in other words, lower costs or higher performance or both, than what's currently avail available, then um, other things being equal, markets will take advantage of that because it's a less expensive option, because it's a more efficient and more efficacious op option. Now, 
the what, what follows from there is that we are going to save money as we transition um, or really as we transform our energy and our uh, transportation and our food systems precisely because the new technologies will be cheaper and more capable. So the longer we wait to do that, once they are cheaper and more capable, the, the more money we're throwing away on the older, dirtier technologies. Now, the, uh, there is, there's more than one way to think about cost. So I'm speaking primarily about economic costs because they are the fundamental driving force behind disruption. However, in the case of climate change, for example, um, the environmental costs are another, uh, are another factor to consider. So with these three disruptions, we are in an, in an extraordinary situation where not only are the new technologies economically more cost-effective, uh, and that is that's the primary driving force for the fact that they're disruptive uh, in their nature, but they are also going to um, allow us to reduce social costs and environmental costs that are associated with the older technologies. So this is a win-win-win across the board for us with disruption. And what that means is that the sooner we can do this, the, the, the more rapidly that uh, we embrace these disruptions, the faster we can start saving money financially and reducing social and environmental costs. Uh, yeah, and, and so I, I could not agree more with you, Mark. Uh, we're drawing to a, a close uh, to the end of come near to the end of the, the interview, Adam. And uh, I want to make a, a couple of points uh, just to finish up and we'll let you respond. And you make the point that market forces are going to be driving this. And I, this is something that I've uh, banged on about for, for years now, uh, which is the energy transition is not driven by policy. The energy transition is driven by technology change, uh, changes in markets, uh, capital, and so on. And policy will make it go faster or slower. But it, fundamentally, the pump has been primed, and it now flows on its own. And it doesn't, it's not dependent upon policy uh, for, uh, to make the energy transition happen. So I like the idea of this emphasis on uh, market forces. And one of the points that you make is that withdrawing CO2 from the atmosphere will very soon become affordable. And that, of course, was raised in the, uh, in the IPC, IPCC report that came out this uh, recently. And so what, what makes you think that uh, negative emissions or withdrawing CO2 will become affordable uh, in the near future? Well, the carbon withdrawal uh, side of the coin is a crucial one, and it is often underappreciated, right? So the, the, the climate change challenge is two-sided. On the, on, the, on the one side of the coin, we have to uh, mitigate, we have to um, achieve net zero emissions. We need to stop emitting greenhouse gases. Uh, but on the other side of the coin, um, that's not enough. We need to also uh, withdraw carbon from the atmosphere and not merely to offset emissions. So that's the one thing we could do is we could offset emissions by withdrawing, you know, if we're emitting in one place, we could withdraw carbon somewhere else and achieve a, a net a zero um, outcome that way. But that's not the end of the story. The real um, the other side of the, of the coin is that getting to zero net emissions is not getting all the way across the finish line with climate change. 
we, we are very likely going to need to repair the atmosphere. We're going to need to undo some of the damage that we've done. And only carbon withdrawal can do that, right? It's, um, it's like a bathtub. Uh, we, yes, we, if, if, we're, if, we're getting, if we're overflowing in a bathtub, we have to turn the faucet off and stop, stop the, the inflow. But uh, that's only part of the solution. We still have to bail all the water out of the bathtub if, if we're at risk of overflowing. So uh, carbon withdrawal will be central. Unfortunately, right now, the approaches that we've seen have been very expensive. Uh, the technology-based approaches have been very expensive, withdrawing carbon directly from the air, for example. Um, there are, we think, two leading candidates that could be very affordable, uh, perhaps a, a, as low as $10 per ton. Um, uh, and those are reforestation, afforestation, reforestation. That's the lowest hanging fruit. It's simply to um, engage in reforestation and afforestation. And the good news there is that the food disruption, which will uh, transform and, and ultimately virtually wipe out all uh, conventional animal agriculture, that will free up an enormous amount of land worldwide for reforestation. So, so that's a, a, the first step. But our analysis indicates that even that will not be enough and that some technology-based carbon withdrawal will also be required. Now, there are a number of options on the table for that, but the good news there is that the other disruptions, specifically in energy and transportation, will lower the cost of carbon withdrawal because they will lower the cost of energy involved in those processes, and they will lower the cost of operating machinery by electrifying the machinery in those processes and by automating the machinery that's, that are used in those processes. So these disruptions themselves will be a force for lowering the cost of carbon withdrawal, however that, uh, in whatever form that carbon withdrawal ultimately takes. And so this is, um, this is a, a knock-on effect, but a very positive one that gives us another tool in the arsenal for combating climate change. Well, thank you very much for this, Adam. I, I've really enjoyed our conversation. And one of the reasons I've enjoyed it is because you've put structure around a wicked problem. We have disruption. To, uh, we're at the, at the inflection point on the S-curve on those disruptions. We're disrupting in energy, transportation, and food. Those three together, the disruptions can then get us over the finish line in climate change if we make the right societal choices. And to do that, we there's a number of things we have to do, like have better conversations. That at least we're taking in a very amorphous, difficult problem putting some structure around it so that people can understand it. And I think that's a, an important step towards solving the climate crisis. So thank you very much for this. Really appreciated your insights. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.